Check. One, two, one, two. There we go. Oh. So nobody heard anything I said. Nobody heard anything that I said just now. God damn it. Oh, <laughs> oh that is terrible. All right. Well, I guess I'll have to trim out that section. Pretend like you didn't see anything. Oh, my God. I was really ramping up. I was really sort of oh, oh, so annoying. All right, let's start again, shall we? I'll have to trim this broadcast. Welcome to another episode of The Jeff Show. My name is Jeff, and uh, what we were just talking about until I found out, thank you, <laughs> thank you, John, for, uh, for, for, for letting me know that there was no audio, these stupid headphones. I have my, my, my good boom mic is in storage at the moment, and so I have this, this you know quick setup, which is not ideal. If you notice, I put the mic away from my mouth because... It comes in way too hot. And speaking of which, uh, I just like to shout out John because look what he sent me, dude. He sent me these Tarman socks. I don't want to even open the package; they're so beautiful. Look at these beautiful socks. So big shout out to John and a thank you. I know there's nobody here in the chat and, and uh, watching at the moment, but you know there will be on repeat viewings. And yeah, one size fits most Tarman socks. That's so great. Let me tell you something, and this is my solemn promise: I will only wear these socks when I have to go to weddings. That's right. Anytime I'm at a wedding, I'm going to be secretly have wearing Tarman socks underneath my suit. And nobody is going to know except for me. So these are special dress socks, as far as I'm concerned, forevermore. Just want to put that out there. Okay. Um, so as I was saying, I'll, I'll try and, oh God, I'll try and re-encapsulate this in two seconds. So again, Here's the interesting thing about production and story and when you're writing something, when you're creating something, what happens is it's kind of like, it's kind of like chopping down a forest to build a cabin. It starts off, you, you take the seeds. Thank you, sir. Truly. Thank you. You take, I, I love them. I really do. I love them. Um, so you, you, uh, when you write a story, it's like planting seeds in the ground. Uh, production is like when those seeds grow into trees. Uh, editing is like chopping down those trees and building a house out of, you know, I had this analogy, I said the analogy perfectly before. I don't feel like repeating it. The point is things get rewritten over and over again throughout the different stages of production. Something that ideas that were present during the writing of the movie don't become feasible or get changed during the production of the movie. Um, and then again, things get rewritten during the editing of a movie. That's why, you know, I totally agree with Kevin Smith on this. You know, being a writer, director, editor makes perfect sense because, you know, if, if, this, if this is my baby, if this IP, if the thing that I created is my baby and I want to rewrite it again, why would I hand it over to someone else to rewrite? I mean, yes, that's also like a smart thing to do. It's like having a producer. It's like Glenn Danzig being his own producer all the time. Um, which sometimes is a good thing and most of the time is a bad thing, in my opinion. Um, but that's another story for another time. Uh, I believe in, you know, the ability to, you know, sort of uh, take a bite at the apple uh, again, you know, uh, in the editing process. And so that happens too. I'm really getting off of topic here. My point is, is that things get lost. <laughs> God, what a mess. This video is a mess. Damn you, internet. Um, we're going to take a look at some Return of the Living Dead 2 cutscenes. 
from the script. I didn't know these existed. I was searching around on the internet for something else, Return of the Living Dead related. related. And I was uh, betrothed this, in my opinion, treasure. And I don't know what they are. I'm going to look at this blind now live uh, on YouTube. So that's what I'm going to do. Okay. So uh, it's, it's, I'm going to be just as surprised as anybody out there, whoever watches this video at some point. Okay. Uh, and, and, and then, like I said, this is why scripts, I'm repeating myself over and over again. This is why scripts are so valuable because they contain ideas and concepts that don't ever make it to the finished film. That's why if you find your favorite movie in a novelization form, always pick up that novelization because it's going to have uh, character and backstory and dialogue and scenes that were not that don't happen in the movie. Um, Waterworld is a great example of this. Uh, I think Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Just, just if you find novelizations to your favorite films, go pick that up. I don't think there ever was a novelization to Return of the Living Dead Part Two, but we know about Return of the Living Dead Part One. I talked about that in the previous video. Go check it out. Okay. Let us share the screen, whip it, and bam! Not quite perfect. So this guy, this guy, Gamer Guys Reviews, he he got a hold of an electronic. Well, I'll just read his story. Let's just look at his story. The Return of Living Dead sequels are an interesting bunch. Neither tried to replicate the original's balance of horror and comedy. I Already, I disagree with this guy. That's exactly the failings of Return of Living Dead Part 2. It tries to repeat the original's balance of horror and comedy, except amping up the comedy uh, and thus unbalancing the horror and the comedy. Uh, opting, oh, now I feel like a fool. Opting instead to do either or. That does make sense. Okay. Uh, foot foot planted firmly in mouth. Well, most fans appreciate Brian Usna's dark, gothic, body mutilation approach of Return of Living Dead 3, myself included. Uh, reactions to the second installment's slapstick shenanigans are divided. All right. This guy's actually awesome. I take back what I said. Um, either you laugh at the chatty severed head with a southern accent or groan at how this is a sanitized. That is so perfect. It's so true. Uh, Return of the Living Dead 2 is sanitized. It feels like a children's film. It doesn't have any of the danger that the first one or the third one have, if you can call it danger. Maybe that's a bad word. I think danger is a good word in that sense. Um, it's, a com com it's a sanitized, comedic retread of the original. Writer-director uh, Ken Wiederhorn uh, stated in various interviews it was his decision to focus on the laughs and to have a child be a main star instead of punks. I mean, that's the, I mean, look, if you're going to rehash, bring us more punks, man. That's what we came for. We came for punks. Don't, don't give us this, this nonsense of don't, don't turn this into a children's story. It's like uh return of the living dead by way of Scooby-Doo. We don't need that. That's not necessary. Um, there is a lot of information available about the making of the first Return of the Living Dead. That is true. However, I don't know. When did our friend write this? This was written. Okay. This was written on May 29th, 2020. I mean, he's completely negating the complete history of the Return of the Living Dead, which really covers the first three films in pretty, pretty good detail. You know? Yeah. Peter agrees with me. More punks. Exactly. Don't you guys love the way that these, these comments drop down? Look at that. Boom. I love that. So, so good. Thank you, StreamYard, for doing that. Um, I always wondered, uh, any details on what, what changed or got removed during the script writing process is only brief, briefly detailed by those involved. 
I always wondered what was cut from part two script and my luck changed in early 2019. Someone from a Return of the Living Dead page I followed told me he had a copy of the script he would be willing to part with for the right price. Due to other financial commitments, I did not acquire it right away, but that changed earlier this month. So I, you know, I want to take back what I said about this guy about, you know, not knowing what he was talking about. I salute this gentleman for the service that he is providing us fans about Return of the Living Dead Part 2. He's doing us a great service in uh, acquiring the skip script, reading through it, and giving us an overview. Like I said, I'm doing this blind. I have no idea what these deleted scenes are, so I'm going to be just as surprised as you guys. Um, one on a rainy Friday afternoon, the film's script and electronic press kit arrived in the mail. Once the package was opened and the contents removed, I began reading through the script, taking note of any deleted scenes, unused dialogue, alternate scenes, etc. The script, second draft, dated November 7th, 1986. I wasn't even a year old yet. I was born November 25th. 1985. So I'm not even a year, not even a full year old. And this is being written. The second draft is 104 pages long, equal to 104 minutes. That's not always true, by the way. Um, that's the general rule. One page of script equals one minute of screen time. But that sometimes changes, man. Sometimes one page of script can be five minutes of screen time and vice versa. Five pages of script can literally be boiled down into a single 30 second, you know, shot. You know what I mean? They say a picture, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, a moving picture is probably worth ten thousand words. So, so there you go. Um, nearly fifteen minutes worth of material did not make it to the finished product. So, if he's measuring by script pages, fifteen whole minutes worth of material did not make it to the final product. Time to highlight nine elements which ended up on the cutting room floor. So. My little clickbaity title was a lie. These are not actual deleted scenes that were filmed. These are deleted scenes that were cut during the script writing process. So while they are technically deleted scenes, they're actually just cut scenes, uh, a slight difference because deleted scenes imply that this was this material was filmed. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, even though something isn't included in the narrative in the final director's cut or final theatrical cut of a film, if it exists in a deleted scene in my mind, I just think it still happened. It just happened off screen. You know, I don't know. Does anybody else feel that way? That's how I feel about that stuff. All right. So here they are. Ready? One alternate Jesse's introduction. The script begins with a convoy of trucks driving through the town with triaxin barrels and tow. We see this in the in, in the opening, and we see, you know, the guy with the steering wheel, he's tapping the steering wheel, all, all disingenuous. Uh, one of the drivers, too distracted by the music emanating from his Walkman, fails to notice three barrels fall out of the back and onto the road. Whatever happened to those other two barrels? I wonder. Uh, where one barrel is clever enough to inch its way off a cliff and into the river below. That doesn't change. We then transition to a newly built suburb complete with new sod for lawns, and a moving truck in one driveway for sale signs, several houses still under construction. So he's quoting actual stuff from the script. So really try and paint the picture in your mind as to what you're seeing uh, in Return of the Living Dead Part 2. Jesse Wilson, the protagonist, is first introduced running around while pretending he is his favorite superhero master man. <laughs> what, a, what a bad superhero name, master man. I guess it's better than animal man. I don't know. Animal Man, what a terrible superhero name, Animal Man. Uh, 
He runs from house to house, caught up in some sort of fantasy game. Jesse is a kid who plays by himself and is uh, and is never alone. His superhero fantasies are cut short by Billy and Johnny, two bullies who take note of his unusual behavior and begin harassing him about it. I mean, this doesn't feel all that different from the opening that we got. I guess maybe that it shows the, the two kids discovering Jesse and bullying him as a result. I don't know. Jesse asked them to stop by bargaining some of his rare comic books. So that introduces the comic books that we see up in Jesse's room later. They kind of, this is how that's introduced. Uh, this leads into the film's opening where Jesse looks out the window uh, at the bullies, unsure what to do next before pulling out his comic book connect collection, snagging an issue and bringing it to the two toughs waiting for him. So that's where we see the opening where he's being initiated into the gang, right? Um if the lighthearted tone was not clear enough in the film, then it is here. The suburban setting combined with a kid whose vivid imagination makes him a primary target for neighborhood bullies. But, you know, there's a way to do that. in a Like, imagine if Dan O'Bannon was doing that instead. It would be so much darker. And because it involves children, it would feel so much more uncomfortable because you know something really bad is going to happen to those kids Yet in this film, something really bad happens to those two bully kids. And I don't, nobody cares. It doesn't, it doesn't affect anything. It's not, it feels too childlike. So even though these kids die and even eat their parents, it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't do anything. It's just like, whatever. Um, and I've talked about my aversion to kids getting hurt in movies and how it, here, he says, actually, man, you know, I got to take it back. Uh, gamer guy knows what he knows what's up. He knows what he's doing here. Uh, this is what he says. Ready? He says uh, the suburban setting combined with a kid whose vivid imagination makes him a prime target for the neighborhood billies is ripped straight from the Sp Spielbergian school of filmmaking. That's what Ken Wiederhorn was trying to do. He's trying to make Return of the Living Dead as if it was a Amblin Spielberg film. That's exactly how you have to look at Return of the Living Dead Part 2. Wow. That kind of blows my mind. That There is a hot take right there. I mean, it's not a hot take. I think it's an obvious take. I just never thought about it like that before. It's literally Spielberg. That's what it is. Having the kids or the teens encounter an unknown creature presence terrorizing the small town suburbs was all the rage in the 80s as evidenced by films like Gremlins, The Monster Squad, and The Blob Remake. Return of Living Dead Part 2 falls in the same category. This is mind-blowing. Do you ever think of Return of the Living Dead 2 in the same breath as the Monster Club? Or And it's funny because the Blob remake does the same thing. Oh, the Blob remake feels dangerous. I love that Blob remake. And it also stars Michael Kenworthy, who plays Jesse in Return of the Living Dead Part 2. Two monster movies or horror films that this kid starred in. This was the horror kid in 1988, if you ask me, truthfully. Huh interesting all right so this is number two cut gags and gore return of the living dead 2 features a lot of slapstick humor from zombies falling into empty graves to a michael jackson zombie being electrocuted amidst the throngs of other ghouls and what violence exists is kept to a minimum again perfectly well stated and that michael jackson gag is totally the fault of brian peck who would play scuzz in return of the living dead part one Let's not talk about him. Um, however, the script tries to strike a balance between the two, even if the zombies are played for laughs. For And that's so true. The zombies are never played for laughs in Return of the Living Dead Part 1. 
That's the difference in the comedic tone. The comedic tone almost comes from everybody's taking it so seriously that the comedy is a byproduct. And it's the same thing in Reanimator as well. Uh, you know, when when the head is literally giving head in Reanimator, they're they are committed to a head giving head. You know, it's the audience that starts going, oh, <laughs> that's a head giving head, laughing as a byproduct to how serious it is. Um, and Return of Living Dead 2 doesn't do that at all. As a matter of fact, it create it, yeah, it treats the zombies are they're funny. Everything they do is is funny. They're goofy. How could they be dangerous? How could they be scaring? How could they be this unstoppable force? Because in the first one, the zombies are an unstoppable, inevitable force that is going to consume everything. And the only way to stop it is with a nuclear bomb, which is terrifying to me. And and again, you know, you, you really don't even think about the uh you know the, the use of the nuclear weapon uh at the height of the cold war you know uh just very interesting very very interesting um for late for example later in the movie ed james karen's character attacks a soldier after he turns into one of the undead though the scene is tame in the movie it is surprisingly graphic in the script so the script Interesting. So the script has more gore, which is also written by Ken Wiederhorn. And then what happens? It just tone, tones it down. When 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 Ed, played by James Karen, attacks the soldier named Les in the script, the description is as follows. Les's body jerks in a death spasm, his hands scratching at the open wound, trying to stuff his brains back into his head as he staggers backwards and collapses into the street. What an image. What an image. And what we got was just like so bad. Oh, my goodness. Talk about – and then once again, here's a great example of how, again, you write something in a script and it just gets lost in translation as you take it to production. I also think this goes to show that someone can write a brilliant script, but if it's not executed properly, it's going to end up being schlocky. And so sometimes it's not the script's fault. It's the production's fault, even if it's – even if the director is also the screenplay writer, as is the case with Return of the Living Dead Part 2. Scenes like this and Billings' dad getting pounced on by a zombie uh, showed Ken trying to satiate the humor with the right amount of gore. Although that is not to say the script is light on gags. There is a bit described where driving through the town looking for an exit, Doc Mandel spots a liquor store and asks if they can stop there for a second until zombies burst through the window with booze in tow. Earlier, when the corpses pour into Jesse's house looking for brains, one of the zombies notices a beetle fall out of its ribcage and onto the counter. He tries to crush it, but instead hits the remote, which turns on the TV and distracts the reanimated bodies. I mean, ah, that would have been so much better than what we got in the film and made so much more sense, uh, especially if these are zombies with consciousness right they have a built-in consciousness so it's like you know to see some of them have never seen tv before you know if they're coming out of an old cemetery grave i don't know it's it's the same you know civil war era cemetery that we got in the first film no but you know who knows i don't know or at least to see aerobics in the 80s they're used to black and white tv from the 40s who knows who knows man alternate the severed head so this is number three one of the more memorable moments in part two is when the head uh, Ed and Joey lobbed off one of the bodies in the mausoleum, springs to life, and attacks Ed. 
Tom stabs it with a screwdriver, throws it in the closet, and that's the last of it until the finale when it pops up for a final appearance before being roasted by a flamethrower. And mind you, that happens in Jesse's house. And then somehow the severed head makes it to the power station at the end of the film, which is hilarious. Uh, and it says, I won't eat brains for now. Something like that. Um, the severed head is in the script, but instead of appearing twice, it only appeared the one time in the house after Tom kicks it into the closet and shuts the door. We never see it again. The reason for this change was a studio decision. According to an article published in the January 1988 edition of Fangoria, the producers saw the scene and asked if they could if it could become a reoccurring bit. Another piece of trivia is the voice uh, is the voice was provided by the man in charge of makeup, Kenny. So Kenny Myers, who did as you know, Kenny Myers replaced uh, what's his face, uh, William something. Uh, Stat no no, not William. Forget the other guy, the guy who designed the Tar Man, did the the terrible headless Yellow Man cadaver. Kenny Myers replaced him on Return of the Living Dead. One and then came back for Return of the Living Dead Part Two, but he does the voice for that the the screwdriver zombie head. Myers thought his voice would be replaced in post production, but the studio instead kept it. So Myers did it as a goof. That voice is meant to be a goof, and it stayed in the final edit. How about that? Uh, maybe they didn't want to spend the money on looping looping the dialogue. Speaking of, there is no reference to a Michael Jackson zombie anywhere in the script as he was an on-the-spot decision made by the makeup effects crew. Actually, again, Brian Peck. That was Brian Peck. Number four, the Tar Man's return and death. Interesting. So the Tar Man had more, you know, that always bothered me that the Tar Man was so, was, was a, such a, it's like, oh, we have to hit the Tar Man note. So they hit the Tar Man note and then they move on with the script. It was just like so clumsily inserted into the film. And th apparently that's not the case. And let's find out. Let's find out. I don't know myself. Like I said, I'm reading this blind, which is why I already, I second guessed our, our, our gamer man uh, up above. Sorry, my neck. I got up. <clears throat> Got to get back to doing yoga. Alternate, Tarman's Return and Death. Return of the Living Dead Part 2 is a comedic beat-for-beat beat retread of its predecessor, and at no point is it made clearer than by the reappearance of the Tarman. In the script, Jesse has to return to where the barrel is since he can't remember the number stenciled on the side of the tank. Whereas in the movie, he goes immediately from Billy's house to the cemetery. Side note. The script explains the cemetery is adjacent to the housing development, whereas the movie makes the geography of the two locations unclear. Uh, you know, I have to disagree here. I think I always assumed that the cemetery was right next to the housing development. And I assume that because of let's look at the poster. Oh, no. I had the poster. What did I do with the poster? The po right on the poster, you see the, the, the tombstones right next to the house. I always assumed that the cemetery was built next to the housing development, and that was the problem. So that's interesting. Um, when he gets back, uh, when he gets back there to write the number, uh, to write the number, the description of his encounter with the Tarman is the same as how Dan O'Bannon wrote Tina's encounter. As you can see, the comparison below. Wow, look at that! So he's got two of the script pages. When Jesse outwits the tar man and pushes him into the creek, we assume he dies. But in the script, it describes how Jesse uh, pushes the shuffling corpse into the water. 
the tar man's body dissolves and falls to pieces. Oh, what? Why didn't we get to see that? How, how much better would that movie have been if we had seen that? Uh, uh, what should be a cool moment is cut short. Still, the sequence highlights Ken's tendency to retread old ground instead of taking risks. Let's read. Let's see. Oh, and we can read it too. We're so reading this right now. Let's take a look. All right. It's really hard to see, actually. It's, I'm sorry to say it's hard to see because my monitor is so high up. Uh, let me try my best. Here, you know what I'm going to do, actually? I'm going to do this. I can do this. This will allow me to read it better. He agrees. He would have loved to have seen that. Hold on one second while I pull this up. Okay, now I can read it better because it's down here instead of up there. Let's see, although it's still smaller. All right, this is really blurry. I'm going to try my best to read it. Continue. Jesse to himself. I got this very, I got this very bad feeling inside, like I'm about to get totally freaked. He swallows hard and slips through the fence. Uh, exterior, cemetery, storm drain, night. Jesse gets close to the mouth of the drain and puts on painter's goggles. He ties a cloth around his around his mouth and nose. Then he leans over into the drain and shines a flashlight inside. The drum lies on its side. Uh, one end open, a slimy black-green liquid slowly leaking out. Jesse moves the light around and finds... The lettering, but the last two digits aren't lit up, but the last two digits aren't visible. He goes up and moves closer. The camera dollies into the gaping opening mouth of the drum. It's empty. Whatever, whatever was inside is gone. Finally, Jesse gets close enough to see the numbers, but the painter's goggles have steamed up. He can't see through them. He lifts them up onto his forehead as he writes the numbers down. He steps in something sticky and notices black green slime on the ground next to the drum. A trail of it leads away up into the storm drain itself. Jesse follows the trail of the black green liquid with the flashlight. The stuff smears as it disappears into the bowels of the drain. Something moves in there. Jesse stiffens. Jesse. I knew it. I just knew it. Something starts to shuffle forward out of the shadows. First, we see its feet. Then the rest of it comes into the light. It's the body that was in the tank, exclamation point. It's a skeleton covered with black, tarry glop. It speaks in its raw, vomitous voice. Ken Weirhorn is a great writer. Oh, my Lord. Brains. Brains. It moves towards Jesse, reaching out for him. Jesse spins around and into the muck. The goggles slip over his eyes. He can't see through them. The thing makes a grab for him, but he stumbles out of reach. Jesse runs towards the water, still unable to see. Tarman pursues. Jesse puts Jesse pulls at the goggles, gets them off just in time to stop at the edge of the ditch and step out of the way and let the Tarman splash plunge into the water. The creature struggles to stay afloat. Brains, brains. The water starts to steam around him, steam around him. The black glop begins to dissolve, and the tar man himself seems to come apart as he slowly sinks deeper into the water. Jesse is transfixed, suddenly snaps out of it, and runs like hell 
Tarman disappears from sight into the b- bubbling froth. Several raggedy pieces of clothing pop up to the surface and float peacefully. Jesse sprints through the cemetery, screaming. This is pure, unadulterated terror. He runs into a gravestone, falls, cuts himself. Jesse just lays on the grave, totally out of breath. He is bruised and bleeding. Then the ground right in front of him moves. A tuft of sod pushes up and tears loose. A skeletal hand reaches out, grasping for air. Jesse stares at the hand, then scrambles to his feet, and that's, that's the end of that. So, man, that is so, man, first of all, Ken is a great writer. That's number one. Even if he's doing a retread or whatever you want to call it. Number two, isn't that, how much better does it sound on the page than, say, compared to, you know, uh, what we got in the film? Let's see how it compares to the original Return of Living Dead. They said it's very similar. I'm going to read this real quick. It's just two pages. I hope nobody minds. Ah, oh crap. Oh crud. Here we go. Tina, frowning at the hat. Freddy, are you here? The cellar door stands open. Light pours from it. Tina peers into the cellar, craning her neck. The lights are on below. She hears a sound. She hears a slight sound. Hello, is somebody there? She starts down the cellar. She starts down into the cellar. Interior, basement, night, rain. As she steps on the third step down, it creaks and shifts under her foot because it's a B-I-D-C-H. She glances down at it and keeps descending the stairs. At the bottom of the stairs, she looks around. Bare electric bubbles, bare electric bulbs glowing, dust all over the place. Jeez. Jeez, what a smell. Anyone here? She looks over and sees huge canisters, the one labeled property, Department of the Army. She walks over to them. The nearest one has obviously been opened. Its lid is up with signs of disturbance in the dust that coats it. Curiosity overtakes her. She raises the lid of the tank and looks down into it. The glass that formerly sealed it is shattered, smashed away. In the bottom of the tank is nothing except some black sludge. She wrinkles her nose at the stench, stronger here. Her eye goes from the black slime in the tank to the floor next to the tank. There is more of the slime on the floor, and a trail of it leads away from the tank. So it's the same gag, the tra- and which they did, which Dan O'Bannon also did not do. I mean, how much more terrifying would it be to reveal the tar man by a slime of by using black slime as like a like a like a trail? Um, the trail of the black liquid, which has a smeared appearance, leads over to the corner of the cellar, back behind some crates, to the black shadows. Something moves in the shadows. Tina stiffens, just like Jesse. Uh, who's there? Something starts to shuffle forward out, forward out of the shadows. First we see its feet. Then the rest of it comes into the light. This dude literally lifted Dan O'Bannon's script. This is hilarious. It is the hideous, horrible monstrosity. It's, it is, it is the body that was in the tank. It is a skeleton covered with black, tarry glop, wobbly and loathsome. It speaks in a voice like vomit. Brains, brains. It shuffles towards Tina, waving its arms at her. She does not scream. Instead, she gasps. 
a huge intake of air that fills her entire chest cavity and her eyes get huge and round as saucers. She turns and runs through the stairs, dashes up them, gasping and panting in horror. As she hits that third step from the top, coming down on it with all of her weight, it gives way, splintering with a loud noise and collapsing. Tina's leg goes right through the step as it caves in and falls down to her hip. She hangs there a second with one leg poking through, kicking and trying to find a purchase. She clutches at the stairs and walls with her arms and turns and looks back down the stairs behind her. The thing is start, excuse me, the thing is starting up the steps, leaving a black trail behind it. Brains. She screams now and tries to claw herself upright, but the second another step gives and uh, sorry, but at that second, another step gives in and she falls through the stairs. She lands thud on the concrete below the steps. She lies there gasping in pain, trying to pull herself up. Tina in pain. Oh, oh. So, wow, boy, our, our boy Ken really sort of lifted that. Although I think Ken does a great job of of writing i mean he's a great writer and it really could you imagine if he was able to translate the page to the screen it would have just been so much better it would have and and the idea this idea this concept of like let's have the tar man dissolve because that's such like a uh, it's such like an open-ended thing we just lose the tar man as soon as he falls into the water and it feels like such an afterthought for something that is such a central part of the return of living dead mythology just really kind of bums me out um, when Jesse outwits the tar man and pushes him into the creek, we assume he dies. But in the script, it is described that after, all right, we already, we already read that. All right. So this is scene number five. Uh, it's cut. It's the hospital. This is a tricky one. Though the scene exists in the final product, the events which occur are heavily truncated from page to film. At first, it starts the same. After returning from, from their search around town, Jesse sneaks off while Tom and Lucy talk with Doc and Brenda about Joey and Ed's condition. Jesse takes the elevator to the basement where he finds the communications room. A corpse stumbles out from another room, so he hides. However, the corpse sniffs him out and starts breaking through the glass to reach the boy. Jesse retaliates by shooting the zombie with a magnum he had hidden hid under his shirt. From here, the script and the movie deviate. Interesting. What? Well, let's see what that is. In one of the script's clever moments, Jesse gets an idea. Jesse slams the door shut, looks around. There's a whole wall of refrigerated drawers. This is the morgue. The corpse pushes against the door, too strong for Jesse. He backs to the other center of the room. The corpse bursts in. The corpse advances. Jesse frantically looks around. He sees the handle on a drawer and pulls it out. The body of an old woman lies on the tray. Jesse points at the cadaver's head and motions to the corpse. Jesse, look, brains. Corpse, brains? Jesse, yeah, that's right over here. <laughs> this segment is a nice foreshadowing of the finale where the surviving group uses meat brains from the local packing plant to lure the ghouls to the power plant. They use cow brains. Uh, the sequence continues with the corpse uh, choosing to chase after Jesse, preferring the fresh brains over the dead ones. Unfortunately, more zombies show up in the hallway, but just as the pursuing zombie closes in on Jesse, Lucy steps out of the elevator and sends it flying with the shotgun. 
From there, we get a surprisingly hectic action scene where Tom and Lucy mow down zombies left and right with the occasional humorous moments like when Tom is briefly distracted by the ghastly but beautiful sight of a female corpse, possibly reference to the zombified trash. Interesting. When the fight is said and done, the three escape as the camera holds on the corridor of moving and twitching body parts. So that, to me, sounds like, oh, we either ran out of time or money to shoot this, and so we're cutting it. I mean, that's really what happens. I can tell you, in my experience, and I've never helmed a feature-length I've – ha- I've shot a feature-length film, but I've never shot a feature-length film at the scale or scope of something like Return of the Living Dead Part 2, and probably never will, sadly. Knock on wood. I hope someday I get the chance to, but not going to happen. Well, let's be realistic here. Whatever. In any case – uh, self-defeat is such a terrible thing. I, I take that back. In any case, um, but what does happen is you, you know, you schedule time when you're shooting something and, you know, you schedule time. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And then you're like, oh, in order to get this and this, which are necessary, we need to cut this or blah, blah, blah. And I bet you dollars to donuts are just like, oh man, let's just cut, let's just scrap this all together and move, move through it. Especially because Ken had a really tough time filming this movie. It really annoyed him. Pete says in the chat, the tar man dissolving reminds me of a toy I had as a kid. It was called Mad Scientist Monster Lab. I mean, what a missed marketing opportunity. Tar man dissolves in water. Like they should have sold that. You could have licensed, they should have licensed the tar man and done a tar man version. How many kids would love to make the tar man dissolve in water? What a what a what a fantastic missed opportunity, truly. The elaborate action described is downsized to just the one corpse who comes at Jesse at the end of the hallway, talking about what actually happens in the movie. Where we get we get our second half corpse. We've got the uh, retread once again, retreading the first one. We get the half corpse again. Tom and Lucy show up, and the zombie gets bisected, courtesy of a double barrel shotgun blast from Lucy. The effect of the half corpse chasing after Jesse is impressive. It is. It's one of the best gore gags in the movie, personally, in my opinion. Uh, but one has to wonder why the scene was cut to the bare minimum, time and money. Uh, as as seen in this still frame taken from a behind-the-scenes uh, video, the morgue set was built but never used. Look at that. Look at that. There you go. There it is. That's the morgue that we were just talking about in the script. It did exist. Uh, and then here it is again. This was, These are video stills. Look, that must be one of the drawers that Jesse would have gone into. They just simply chose not to shoot it. Um, Ken Wiederhorn said he faced a variety of challenges during production, most of which stem from his decision to make a kid the star. Labor laws state a child actor can only work a certain number of hours on set. Okay, there you go. So there you go. It's like you, they, they made they had to make choices. They had to decide hey, we got to cut this in order to get this, this, and this, which we need because we have this window because Jesse is the star. He's a kid. I mean, why make, why do a kid, why have a kid star? Just so stupid. Um, Which meant that Ken probably had to reduce the sequence of events to which we see in the film. It is a shame he was not able to pull off the scene as he intended. The -the over-the-top action fits well with the campy nature of the sequel. Plus, it plays up the fact that Lucy is supposed to be a top-notch notch marksman and ranked as one of the state's best. Yeah, right, because they go, they have guns in the house, and she turns out that she 
you know, had a, I don't know, that she she's good with a shotgun. Um, Pete asks, do you think they could remake this movie, include all the ideas that were cut in the original? I mean, look, they're having problems. I mean, they've been the, the remake for Return of the Living Dead, which I want very much so, even though I love Return of the Living Dead. And like I said, it's an unremakeable film, but at the same time, it is an, it's, a, it's an immensely remakeable film. I mean, you could tell that story over and over again. And I don't think it would ever get boring. I would love, I don't know if it would work if it if it's not set in the 80s, though. I feel like if they are going to remake it, they should remake it in the 80s. But there's so many different places you can go with the Return of the Living Dead story. I mean, there's endless applications, man. And um, I, I would imagine, I, but, you know, they're having great difficulty remaking this film. It's just not happening. I don't know who holds the, I think Tom Fox's estate still holds the rights. I'm not sure. Um, I've asked Beverly uh, over the years, uh, you know, in various, you know, Facebook chats, you know, things on groups like what, when are we ever going to, is there ever going to be a remake? And sometimes she's mentioned like, oh, you know, there is talk behind the scenes, something like that. Uh, but no, nothing ever comes of it. No, nothing. We get a, a tidbit of news here, a tidbit of news there. Uh, essentially, we had the four and five and then things went dark. And then, oh, they're going to remake Return of the Living Dead. And then that never happened. And that was the end of it. Um, I would imagine if they're going to remake Return of the Living Dead, they're not going to touch part two. I don't think Return of the Living Dead part two is ever going to be remade. However, if someone was really smart in remaking Return of the Living Dead 2, maybe they could go back to previous drafts and scripts and look for little, you know, little tidbits here and there to incorporate into the new script that happens all the time too. going back to Kevin Smith. That's what Kevin Smith does. When Kevin Smith writes a version of a, what, you know, every time he rewrites a, 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 a script or, you know, he rewrote clerks three, a hundred times, he rewrote mall rats two, a hundred times. And when those films didn't get made at the time when he was looking to make them, he recycled elements into other films. And so, but then again, that's a dude playing with his characters in his world and, just economizing by recycling things. Who's to say that, you know, whoever is going to rewrite that script is going to want to put their own element. They're going to want to put their own fresh take, their own mark on the story. You know, Um, as I've always said, don't remake good movies, remake bad movies. Return of Living Dead is not a bad movie. We obviously know that, but still, you know, it's something that I want to see. I just want more. I don't even care if it's a remake. Let it be a sequel. Just give me more. I want more Return of the Living Dead. I love this world. I love this idea. We got so many Romero dead films, and I love the Romero dead films, but I want friggin' O'Bannon zombies too. Give give me all of it, you know, as a as a horror fan. Um, Pete says, I'd rather have practical effects anyway. I would be disappointed with CGI. Oh my God, it would be horrendous. You can't use CGI of zombies. Here's the thing. If you're gonna use if you're gonna use CGI, it has to be applied as a blending tool. You can't just make everything CGI. Use practical effects and then use CGI to blend the practical effects into the real the real world so that it feels more like fantastic than it might actually feel. This is what they did in Mad Max Fury Road. Mad Max Fury Road is mostly practical. Every all those stunts were really done, and then what they did was they used CGI to sort of smooth everything out, and that's what makes Mad Max Fury Road look so good because they really did all that stuff. They really did it, and then all they did was they erased wires and yada yada yada, and it just it just makes for a better movie. Um, anyways, back to 
back to this. Uh, one final note. After the after one zombie gets shot in half and its legs walk away, uh, a gag was supposed to happen later where Doc, Jesse, Tom, and Lucy notice the legs stumbling around town. Whatever. Here's an interesting thing. Number six, ready? The fate of Eddie and Joey. Return of the Living Dead 2 brought back James Karen and Tom Matthews. This time they play Ed and Joey, grave robbers who arrive at the cemetery to dig up the bodies and sell their skulls. So they're they're basically they're they're ghouls, man. They're real life ghouls, which again, not a bad setup. What a great way to set up a Return of the Living Dead movie. Ghouls that actually become ghouls. You know, a ghoul is someone who goes, a grave robber who goes into a, 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 a cemetery mausoleum and you know, uh, you know, picks up, picks at the their vultures. They just take the valuables off of dead corpses and stuff. Uh, just like before, they get exposed to the gas via the acid rain, which is poured into the mausoleum via re- leaky roof. See, I never thought of it that way. Uh, I always thought that the rain came down and sort of mixed with the gas and made more fog, and the fog goes into the mausoleum. And the reason why the girlfriend, she didn't breathe in because she was in the car. I don't know. I always thought it was kind of BS the way that the the, the gas um, wakes up the dead who would not get woken up underground. From I feel like the rain has to soak into the ground. The, the, the way they do it in the first movie just makes so much more sense. It works so much better. And the best part is, the best part is in the first movie, none of the characters know how it happened. They don't. None of them actually figure it out. Only the audience is tuned in to the revelation that when they burn the yellow corpse, the cadaver up, that the dust goes into the clouds and then the rain comes down and soaks into the cemetery. What a great device to spread the gas. So it's not a pandemic. It's not a disease. It's not something that's transferable via bite. You know, it just, it's so much more interesting to me. And yet you still can get a lot of zombies because the rain, the acid rain just keeps coming down, keeps soaking up. And at the end of Return of the Living Dead, the original, which, you know, in the original's mind, there are no continuations. Dan O'Bannon, there was no continuation for Dan O'Bannon. And so the actual continuation is at the very end where it talks about the rain seems to be washing everything away. And so the thing is going to spread because it's been blown up. Things have been blown up on an atomic scale, you know? Um, so, so, okay. So that's how they get exposed via leaky roof, at least according to gamer guy here, but I think it's the fog. Um, and eventually one of the bodies they pull out, uh, also comes to life, at least in the script in the movie, the, Oh, <sighs> no. Okay. So, so I read this wrong. So what they're saying is. It, it was in the in the in the book in the in the script. It's the leaky roof in the movie. It is a fog, right? That's what I thought. In the movie, mist from the rain seeps into the mausoleum. The re- leaky roof uh, does better explain how one body arises when uh, the two take a break. Since in the movie, it just wakes up. Yet the question remains: What happens to Ed and Joey after they turn? The answer: They disappear. I was astounded to learn this glaring plot hole existed. Not only in the movie, but the script. I always thought that the scene scenes were shot, but cut. Then again, when I asked Tom Matthews about this last year, he said they shot nothing. 
which should have been my clue that maybe it was that way in the script. Nevertheless, it is disappointing to know that the, that the two disappear never to be seen again. Did Ken think that no one would notice? However, Brenda's death does play out differently. Instead of fleeing into the church, she runs out into the street, unsure of what to do before Joey catches up and convinces her to let him eat her brains. Still a better love story than Return of the Living Dead Part 3. I disagree with that, sir. How dare you? Return of the Living Dead is the greatest love story ever told. <laughs> I'm, I will stand by that quote, truthfully. Um, number seven. Yeah, that's true, man. They just sort of did James Karen and Tom Matthews. They just sort of disappear. We never, we, they, they just sort of exit their arc, their arc. They, they turn to zombies in the, mo in the moment that they both consume brains. That's it. We never see them again. We don't see them get electrocuted at the end. It just, it's kind of a bummer, you know? Number seven, alternate order of events, a minor detail. But many scenes which happen in the movie occur at different intervals in the script. For example, so they re they resequenced the whole movie was resequenced um, in the edit and in the script it was completely different. This, uh, for example, the scene where Sarge and Frank, the other soldier, get into a shootout with the undead happens after Brenda's death instead of when Tom and the other three pull up at the packing plant. The return of the return of living dead occurs after Jesse comes home with the phone number and begs Lucy to use the phone, but instead is sent to his room. Billy's death and resurrection happens after Doc Mandel's introduction, instead of when the group is sneaking from house to house to avoid the hordes of zombies. Again, it is minor in the grand scheme of things, but it does highlight how the arranging of events is subject to change between script and movie. Because again, things flow differently when you're, you, you shop this stuff and go, oh, well, you know, this will actually flow better. The sequence of events are going to flow better if we switch this around with this. Um, it's, it's about timing and pacing, you know. Number eight, Tom likes butts and he cannot lie. This is incredibly awkward to discuss. I mentioned earlier a deleted scene where Jesse tries uh, – to remember the number by memory, but he can't quite remember the digits. After going back to his bedroom to think about what to do next, we cut back to Lucy, who realizes the cake she baked is finished. As she pulls it out, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Tom stares at her butt. She frowns and bends back towards the oven in a way that allows him to see more of that rear wiggling at him. He can't take his eyes off it. Someone wrote this scene and thought, this is grade A material right here. It is cringy to read, to say the least, and I'm glad this moment got excised. The fact that Lucy is supposed to be 17 makes it more uncomfortable. Freaking 80s, man. Freaking 80s. Different time. Different time. Alternate. The ending. What? Okay, we have an alternate ending, you guys. This is awesome. Surprisingly, the ending plays out differently. After our heroes succeed in electrocuting all the zombies, Doc Mandel and Jesse step outside to notice the sun rising and the military arriving. They start burning the corpses and a couple of stragglers with flamethrowers and are about to turn the torches on the two when the back of the truck opens to show Tom and Lucy fervently making out. The military realizes that they are human and the two guys walk off while the soldiers get to work cleaning up the mess and the two lovebirds continue kissing each other. It's not too different from the film's ending, only instead of flooring them walking off, uh, and we close with the severed head from the earlier 
cracking wise and getting toasted. Closing thoughts. Is the script better than the movie we got? Yes and no. For starters, I appreciate Ken's attempt to balance humor with violence. The finished film leads, leans heavily towards slapstick humor. And though the comic tone is prevalent through the 104 pages, the gory bits involving zombies, humans, and vice versa are entertaining and would have helped solidify the R rating this movie received. It moves at a speedy pace and does a better job at visualizing how empty the town is versus the movie where everything looks clean and organized. That's true. As almost as if it were shooting in Sierra Madre late at night. As much as the script tries to be a fun zombie comedy, its biggest problem is its structure. The script borrows too much from the original and tends to repeat memorable moments word word for word. There is the previously mentioned Tar Man encounter, but the zombie resurrection scene reads like a carbon copy of what we saw before. What could have helped Return of the Living Dead Part 2 is if it went for satire instead of slapstick. Well said, my dude. Yes. I mean, think about all the ways you could satirize things instead of, I mean, that's something that Dan O'Bannon doesn't really do in his film. He's not really satirizing anything, you know? Um, trying to think actually is this no not really no there's no satire in the first film it's it's camp or it's you know it's definitely you know horror taken so seriously that it's comedy but there is no satire and they could have done that in the sequel it would have been better it would have been better man um you can even have bits like like the zombie getting its jaw ripped out but having material which pokes fun at trends from the late 80s, the first film, or even Ken Wiederhorn's earlier works. How funny would it have been if the main characters were stalked by the Nazi zombies from his directorial debut, Shockwaves? That's right. Ken actually directed another zombie film, uh, iconic zombie film, I should say, called Shockwaves, which I've actually never seen. Um, Gremlins 2, the new batch, also amped up the comedy, but it took plenty of jabs at the first movie. Totally agree. I actually love Gremlins 2. If this movie had done the same, maybe it wouldn't have been as polarizing as it is. Nevertheless, it's a piece of horror history. It, I will preserve it. I will preserve as long as I live. So this was written by a guy named William Lowry. William, well done, sir. I I think you did a great job. Let's see his blog profile if it'll show it to us. I don't know. Uh, nothing about him. But he's had this blog since 2014, and he's posted in it as recently as 2020. So let's see what else we have from Return of the Living Dead. I got to go soon, shortly. We have, oh, okay. So he does a review of part two Blu ray review. This is from 2018. Huh. And then, yeah, he just talks about, man, he's, he's definitely passionate. He's passionate about this stuff. He has a review of the original Return of the Living Dead. Kind of want to read that, actually. I feel like we'll get some interesting stuff from him. He has good observations about, about this. Maybe I'll save that. He reviews Return of the Living Dead Part 2, which I'm sure repeats a lot of his subjects. Huh. Oh, he does a commentary for Return of the Living Dead on YouTube. I'm going to check that out. 
I'm kind of annoyed. I kind of want to do that. I want to do my own commentary. Maybe I should do my own commentary. You know what? Screw this guy. Oh, he did an interview with Tom Matthews. Huh. Look at that. Uh, what was it like working with James Karen on the film? I know you two became good uh, became good friends during production. We did, we did. You know, we found out during the making of Return Part Two, we had the same birthday, which was November twenty eighth. Ha! Huh, I'm November twenty fifth. Um, he was amazing. Most of my scenes were with him, so we spent a lot of time together in the mornings as the makeup and costumes were put on us. He had all of these great stories from his time in the industry, and as a young actor, I was eating them up. He's a veteran. He was on Broadway and stuff like A Streetcar Named Desire, and really good friends with a lot of actors. And again. He had these really great stories to share, and we did become good friends after filming. What about Dan O'Bannon? This was his first time directing, so I assume it must have been challenging for him to try and keep the cast and crew production in line. It was challenging, says Tom, but from my experience, it was great. But then again, he didn't have a lot of criticisms with me. In, in my mind, if he was one of the young actors, he would have been my character. As such, I think he was kinder to me versus what he was like around some of the other actors. For a first-time director, he does he did things a bit differently because he was open to suggestions, which allowed for a little improvisation, which is kind of amazing for a first-time director. Because, you know, usually, you know, that's not the case, man. I mean, th in that way, he had no ego. One of the lines, like this job, is something we came up with. Jimmy came up with the self-sacrifice scene in the crematorium and stuff like that. Uh, like putting the wedding ring on the incinerator switch in the scene. It was really a collaboration. And kudos to Dan for allowing us to collaborate. Yeah, man, I, I agree. Which, again, is something a bit unusual for someone who's both the writer and director on a film. Um, yeah. So let's see if he says anything about Return of the Living Dead. Uh... If the studio announced they were doing a Return of the Living Dead movie remake or otherwise and wanted you and some of the other cast members to appear in it, would you accept the offer? I'm not sure. Tom says, I'm not sure given how all the characters from the original died. That's a tough question. Ultimately, I think what it boils down to is if the script is good. Hmm. Yeah, man. Yeah, he, I mean, he's, he's a very interesting actor and I wish that we had, see, look at him, look at him bleached Bond. In this, huh? You can't see it. Uh, wow, this is a long interview. Like this job, man. I gotta get Tom Matthews on my show. I'm gonna do that. All right, so there's a lot of this dude's covered a lot of Return of Living Dead stuff. Maybe we have a little bit more to talk about Return of Living Dead. Um, at some point, I do want to do a script reading. At some point, I do want to do a commentary. Maybe I'll do the commentary first. I'll do a live commentary to Return of Living Dead, and we'll sync it up. If you want to join me, uh, you can join me. I don't know how I would do it live, actually. I don't know if that would work. Oh, you know what? I know who I'm going to get for this. I know who I'm going to get. This is perfect, actually. I have just the guy, maybe, who will do this with me. We'll see. We'll see. Um, if In any case, thank you for joining me. Please like, leave a comment, subscribe. Um, Happy New Year. I'm, I'm gonna try and I'm gonna try and go tomorrow. I'm gonna try and do another video tomorrow. We'll see. We'll see if it'll if if time allows me. Uh peace and hair grease.